I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group one of the best digital asset, event, and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer, and I'm really happy about this one. I have Raghu Yarlagata with me today, the co-founder and CEO at Falcon X. Raghu, how are you? Good well, David. Thanks so much for having me. So we're recording on a Friday, and of course, we are recording on what is a very busy Friday uh, for those that are in digital assets. Uh, options expiry was uh, last night, I believe, around 7 p.m. or so Eastern. And so those that are in the functioning aspects of digital assets from the trading perspective probably didn't sleep very much. And so hopefully, Raghu, you got some rest and you've been able to put out anything that's been happening on your side because it's been very busy for everyone. So I can appreciate that. What we like to do uh, with people that come on the show is just build a little bit of a history. And so you have a tremendous background um, in technology, um, even including the lead product manager at Google for a number of years. So if you could, um, what we'd like to do, as I said, is tell the story when exactly, not necessarily when your Bitcoin moment was, but what about the underlying assets? What about blockchains, for for example, really kind of led you down this path of building and co-founding Falcon X? Oh, absolutely, David. I think uh, I was initially in the camp of Bitcoin is a hoax. <laughs> so let me tell you uh, the journey a little bit from that camp to uh, you know starting a company in crypto assets. So on the at the onset, I'm, a, I'm an engineer by training and also by uh, practice. So I have a master's degree in machine learning and image processing, and I uh, was very passionate about television. So my first job out of uh, you know my master's degree was actually uh, working with Motorola, uh, figuring out how to move high-definition video over a TCP/IP stack, because internet was never designed to actually carry high-definition video around, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the core architecture. And for me, that was a very interesting problem. And Motorola is one of the pioneering teams in the world on that. So we, over two, three years, we, we built a lot of technology that led to what we call the IP television stack. And that laid the foundation for a lot of modern streaming like Netflix, you know, Hulu, and parts of YouTube as well. So that's where I started uh, my career. And uh, to keep it very brief, and after that, uh, I really want to structure all my tribal knowledge in terms of building products and creating value through engineering. Uh, so I want to, I decided to go to what I call the dark side, which is business school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went to, very fortunate to have gone to Harvard Business School, graduated in 2014. I met my current co-founder, Prabhakar, in business school as well. So we know each other for about eight years. And that's where I got 
exposed to dislacids uh, for the first time in, in business school. And uh, now I was in the camp of, uh, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, it seems to be very unstructured, I think long way to go. So uh, I bought Bitcoin in 2012, but I wasn't very serious about that class. Right after business school, I was about to start my own company, uh, but I had a very inspiring conversation with someone from Google. Mm-hmm. So Sundar, who is now the CEO of Alphabet and uh, Google, at that point, he was the VP of Chrome. And uh, after having two hours of that conversation, I was very inspired so much so that I left my own startup idea on the side and joined on Sundar's team. And uh, for him, I drove a product line called uh, Chromebooks. I, uh, I played in the role of uh, product managing that, uh, that product. Mm-hmm. So Chromebooks are lightweight laptops, you know, derived from Chrome, the browser. And between 2014 to 2017, uh, that business line became huge, right? We went from uh, less than 2%, 1.8% market share uh, in U.S. schools, K-12, through to about 63 64% by the time I left. So tremendous growth. We were bigger than Apple and Microsoft combined. But more importantly, I think uh, solving this pain point, right? I mean, it was... Uh, it was unacceptable that six students in U.S. classrooms were sharing one laptop, primarily because of the price point. So having worked on that, that was a lot of fun. I did that for three years, uh, been an active part of scaling the team and all that. In that journey towards the end, I got exposed to this last through a variety of uh, different sources within Google. I mean, some of the best engineers that I know at Google were all in love with blockchain. And I was like, uh, tell me more. And mm-hmm. I, that's one venue. And the second venue is like uh, Google has some stellar initiatives on uh, digital assets as a whole, which we won't be able to talk. Uh, so that got me excited about tokenization. And if you're interested, I'll get you get into a little bit of details of the why, the what, and the how. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that experience got me super excited about tokenization so much so that you know started FalconX and um, you know May June of 2018. Wow. Yeah, not many times you get to meet Sundar Pinkai and get kind of wrapped into Google. So that was a pretty amazing time in your life. Um, hopefully, you're still talking to him actively about what's happening in digital assets because I'm sure they're very interested about that. So let's talk about you know Falcon X. So if you were talking to a family office or an institutional investor who is just getting their eyes open to this entire world, what would you say that Falcon X is? Uh, That's a very good question. Um, For me, the pain point that Falcon X is solving is the pain point that I've ran into myself several times. As an institution or as a family office that is looking for crypto exposure, you want simplicity. What that means is, if you want the world's best price, you should be able to just connect to one platform and get it rather than connecting to 12, 14, 15 different platforms. Mm -hmm. So the notion of one account to get really good pricing. The second thing is not having to worry about inventory management. Yes, you can connect to, you know, four, five, six exchanges, but moving the inventory around is, you know, prone to a lot of security issues. And also not very efficient because you need to understand and predict where the best price is, move the inventory there, take the advantage of pricing on exchanges, and then you know roll it back. All of that is too complex. A lot of people wing it, and we use a lot of technology to basically find the efficient solution for you. So that's the second part, right? I mean, we take care of one account, one set of inventory, and you can you know get the world's best price mm-hmm. uh, around. So that's the second thing that we go after. And the third thing is, 
for a lot of our customers uh, who prefer to basically settle in D plus one business, they, uh, we do have solutions, uh, especially for international customers around the credit side, delayed settlements. Mm-hmm. Those are the three big tenants with which we started the company. And so... One of the things that's quite interesting in your offering, so there's Falcon X Trading, there's Settlement, and then there's Prime Services. This idea of Prime Services, I want to poke around a little bit into, and then we're going to talk about some of the state of state of digital assets from your perspective. But Prime, Prime, we just saw Coinbase acquire a Togomi um, for the bolstering of that. Tell us about what is Prime Services. So coming from institutional you know, equities and debt, you know, to digital assets. What does Prime Services look like in digital assets? That's an excellent question, David. I think uh, the industry is also trying to figure out what exactly Prime means for crypto because uh, it's going to be similar to the traditional, you know, architecture, but I don't think it's going to be exactly the same. So the way I talk about Prime, there are four main, you know, major streams of, uh, you know, Prime product lines and then one auxiliary product line. The first is trading. Second is custody. Third is clearing. Fourth thing is credit. These are the four major product lines for what I call the prime service. And then the auxiliary stream is basically cap and throws, market color, and all of that, the white glove uh, component. So I'll take a pause there and then uh, probably build on that if you have any questions. So in terms of the lending side, that's that's obviously one part of the prime services you mentioned, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm curious because lending has been a topic uh, du jour, if you will. A lot of people are talking about lending. So talk to us about lending and what does that mean? Is it staking? Is it putting up digital assets that you own like Bitcoin uh, to get leverage and margin? What does that mean? You know, I want people to understand at the end of the day, while a lot of this is being reinvented, you know, this new kind of asset class, a lot of the components aren't that dissimilar to what they're used to. So what is lending in, in the prime kind of package? Yeah, very good point. So within the prime pra- uh, package as of today, we operate in trading, the, the execution component of it. Uh, we have clearing. And then we are uh, slowly getting into the credit slash the lending side of the house. Mm-hmm. So with that, we are going towards building a you know prime broker service. On the credit lending side, there are a variety of forms of credit slash uh, lending, whichever term that you use. Um, the four or five different classes that most people talk about when they speak about credit lending is first, you know, I want leverage, right? Mm-hmm. I post, you know, X dollars, I should be able to trade two uh, X, three X, depending on my trading history. Mm-hmm. So that is one form of lending. One of the gaps in that space, I think crypto as an industry should address this very cohesively, is like uh, there is no real good data-driven way to underwrite credit history right. in crypto. As a result, a lot of people are winging it. We'll, we'll get to that if there is interest. The second form of uh, lending slash credit is what we call as delayed settlements. So let's say David, the institutional fund, uh, traded with uh, Southmax and a lot of times, David is supposed to be settling in T plus one business day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of times during volatility for a variety of different reasons, David would love to settle in 10 days or 12 days or 13 days. There you want to have a flexible interest rate on a daily basis so that you make the uh, uh, decision of extending the position when you need to settle the position based on your needs. So that's the second form of uh, lending. The third form of uh, lending is, right, I mean, uh, 
essentially giving you cross-platform margin, right? Meaning recognizing your positions in an exchange or a venue A, understanding the notional values, the limits, securities, and all the caveats with that venue and your particular portfolio and position there, using that data to underwrite and actually give you uh, some credit to trade on, you know, venue B. That is the third form, which we are uh, also hearing, which is cross-platform margin. Right. So, Raghu, I'm curious, in terms of the state of the state of the institutionalization of digital assets, we've had about 600 funds in the market, give or take. About 85% of them are more of the trading nature, where they're trading in and out of digital assets. And then the other 15% are doing more venture capital. With the things that we've been talking about in terms of prime brokerage and services and lending, how would you characterize the maturation of the asset class really from a trading perspective and an asset management perspective? How institutionalization, how institutional has this gotten now? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, to give some context uh, and history for uh, some of uh, your audience, 2017-2018, uh, when the whole crypto ecosystem was going through the ICO uh, wave, a lot of traditional institutions were watching it very closely, but most of them didn't play in that wave. Uh, quote unquote, what I call crypto natives were a very active portion of uh, you know that particular wave and institutional participation. Uh, primarily because the volatility was huge. We don't fully understand the regulation of ICOs and all of that. So that lack of that clarity was the reason why a lot of institutions uh, left, uh, didn't play uh, the quote-unquote traditional institutions. But 2019 and 2020, there's been a very good, gradual, consistent, and what I call sustainable uh, inflow of uh, traditional institutions coming in. At a high level, we measure something using on-chain analytics called um, the ratio of institutional to retail of all the flows that we see uh, within Bitcoin blockchain, Ethereum blockchain. According to our internal analysis, we are at uh, an all-time high on the number of institutions who are actually playing in the space. And specifically, if you double-click on who are the institutions, you're absolutely right. That segmentation is uh, very, you know, we are fully aligned there. We can roughly break this down into what we call as crypto natives and quote-unquote traditional institutions. So traditional crypto natives have been doubling down since 2017, 2018. No surprise there. The inflow of traditional institutions is what was definitely uh, very welcome and surprising. Uh, is a pleasant surprise uh, to companies like Falcon X. Mm. Uh, when we speak with a bunch of them and ask them why uh, are they coming in, they usually paint uh, you know four key points. The first thing that they allude to is what we call the inflationary hedge. As the world is going through this series of quantitative easing, you know, programmatically around the world, uh, a lot of people are looking for a consistent, reliable bet uh, that is a little immune to the inflation that's expected over the next six to uh, 18 months. So Bitcoin, similar to the gold and more programmable version of gold is how we think about Bitcoin, mm -hmm. uh, is staying very resilient to inflation. Through the last three, four years, the data very clearly points to that. Mm -hmm. So that's a big reason. The second reason why we see institutions coming in is what we call as a geopolitical issue hedge. Specifically, whenever there are policy you know, disarrangements and uh, trade disarrangements between uh, US and China, that is where Bitcoin has uncorrelation as well to the broader equities and capital markets. As a result, a lot of institutions want to put Bitcoin in their portfolio to diversify that geopolitical uh, issue risk. Mm -hmm. The third thing is, 
you know, really the endorsements, right? I mean, as the space is becoming more mature, the endorsements from Paul Tudor Jones and Rentec and then a few other players who are uh, big names who are coming into the space, that's a huge validation that this is an asset class that's actually in the making uh, for the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth reason is uh, clearly, I think uh, a variety of uh, things like, you know, uh, settlements are going to be incredibly fast for use cases like cross-border payments right. uh, using crypto as a transmission rail. So those are the four big reasons in summary, David. And so in thinking about the sophistication of the asset managers out there and relative to your platform, would you say on a scale of say one to 10, where is the sophistication right now? That's interesting. I think varies by geographies quite a bit, mm-hmm. but on an average, I would say, you know, seven to eight. Uh, it was at five, literally eight yes. to 10 months back. That's now right. Now seven to eight. And so we yes. saw a huge jump. I agree completely. Yeah, that's, that's, that is spot on. It, it has exponentially matured over the last two or three quarters. I agree with that completely. What do you think is holding back some of the largest asset managers right now from entering the space? Yeah, I mean, um, we we look at a lot of data to basically understand that ourselves and also have subjective conversations. I think the first and foremost is the market microstructure um, definitely needs to evolve. And I think it hurts that on a day like March 12th, where we saw mm-hmm. a ton of volatility on um, Bitcoin, people people got wiped out by $300, $400 million on uh, BitMEX alone mm-hmm. due to liquidations. Uh, if you look at the underlying reason of why, obviously, they didn't post enough margin. And if you double click one layer deep, Bitcoin network was blocked, uh, clogged so much so that, you know, it took about 30 minutes to 70 yeah. minutes for Bitcoin to actually make it to uh, BitMEX. Yeah. Just during that inefficiency of moving Bitcoin on the blockchain, people lost millions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. We attribute about 80 to 120 uh, million out of the 300 to uh, $350 million lost that day purely do inefficiencies in the blockchain. Wow. So that's a huge number, right? Uh, in, a, in an asset class that is $200, million, $200 billion in market mm-hmm. cap, I think that's, that's a relatively huge number. So I think the market microstructure should improve to prevent those events like that, that cascade through the network. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is still the reliability is, uh, you know, definitely something that, you know, needs to improve. If you look at some of the biggest exchanges, it's not very uncommon for them to be, you know, down for half an hour, 45 minutes during peak uh, trading. And that's not acceptable at all. Nope. Right. Uh, whether it's us or our competitors, I think that's one thing that we need to solve, right? Money movement in the space should be seamless. Reliability should be really on par with where the rest of the world is, right, in terms of uh, asset management. So those two things, I could say, uh, are the biggest things that come into mind. But a lot of times, they don't say the third thing, but data actually proves this out, is the security, Mm -hmm. right? The complexity of attack vectors in the space is definitely increasing. As a result, um, you know, the the way to store, you know, your Bitcoin and manage these between different accounts is becoming a hassle to a lot of uh, players in the space. So security is another reason which we don't talk about as much, especially during the time of COVID, the complexity of security attacks increased significantly. So that's another reason that actually scares a bunch of asset managers to come into into the space, David. I agree. I also like to be a little bit on the contrarian side too. You know, what we've seen kind of 
quote unquote traditional kind of platforms out there. I remember it was probably not even a year ago that, you know, some banks actually were, you know, kind of closed down for a day or two. You couldn't even get your money from an ATM or you've had, you know, various different banks being hacked uh, for a lot of their client data. You have new entrants into the space in the fintech world like Robinhood, which has had multitude of different downtimes, especially during some of the most volatile parts of the market over the last three or four months. Now, I know that's not a legacy piece of financial infrastructure, but again, emphasizes that it's not you know just a digital asset issue, but you know, when you're moving to more technology and you're relying more on immense amounts of bandwidth, especially because we're all home, you know, it's it's definitely, I can understand that, but I agree with your point on that. So thinking about the future uh, a little bit, you mentioned tokenization and I think you have some ideas about that. So tell us about what you're thinking about tokenization. Yeah, I think a, a big reason why I jumped into space uh, whether it's the exposure at Google or outside. A lot of consumer internet companies are struggling with this dichotomy of lack of incentive alignment between the users and the company, to be very specific, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So this might be a dated stat, but uh, less than 10% of uh, Facebook users actually produce the content that 90% of the users consume. And what that uh, tells about most of these social networks and broadly consumer internet uh, companies are, Users who are active and contributing to these platforms are very important to a vast majority of the network on that platform, and they don't want their data to be monetized and used, but a lot of consumer internet companies have no other choice but to actually use that uh, information. That was really not solved, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of companies are looking at tools like AI, machine learning to basically align incentives better. But there are a lot of gaps. For me, if you look at the blockchain technology and specifically the Bitcoin blockchain, it's a great incentive alignment mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. The miners are maintaining the network in a very decentralized way by getting a fee from the users who are using the network. That symbiotic relationship is beautiful, right? You know, the most recent halving, which people said, oh, Bitcoin price is going to be collapsing to 5,000, 6,000 after this. No, I mean, the network held and was very resilient there. The ecosystem was, was very healthy right now. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of incentive alignment very deeply within consumer internet companies is needed. Right. And of all the different technologies that I've seen, tokenization, aka the blockchain-based tokenization, is a very powerful mechanism to incentivize uh, uh, people on both sides to actually do the right thing for the network. Mm-hmm. I think... That's going to be one of the three use cases that could potentially uh, you know, tokenize a lot of value on the planet, whether yeah. it's within Fortune 500 companies or central bank issued digital currencies or the good old crypto as we know it today. Uh, that's what I mean by digitization of assets and tokenization. And I'm really excited because I think that that will happen from what I've seen uh, at some of yeah. the biggest companies. Yeah, if you even look at it, to, you know, over the last twenty-four to forty-eight hours, you know, the idea of buybacks is being completely limited, especially on the bank side. You know, over the last three to four months, with companies requesting the PPP and some of the other kind of quote-unquote, you know, they're not calling them bailouts, but let's be honest, people, they're bailouts. Um, you know, you if you take money from the government, you can't do a uh, buyback. 
Um, and so if you are a company, whether you're a private company of, of large amounts or a publicly traded company, and you're in a new world and you need to raise capital, you are not going to do a buyback anymore. So you're not going to do that. You're going to probably look at, you know, debt, but debt is becoming kind of a hard thing to look at because it's not a great debt environment uh, right now, especially with the you know, things that are happening. And so what are you going to do? Well, the idea is that, oh, well, there's this thing called tokenization where you can give people a piece of your company or the the revenue coming into it, a piece of kind of the asset, if you will, you know, an asset backed security almost. Uh, and instead of it being a piece of paper or a debt instrument, uh, it can be a token. Um, and so this idea of tokenization is becoming more of a topic, especially in a post, I shouldn't say post COVID world anymore, because it's not really post anymore because we're seeing the numbers go up again. But in a, in a COVID world, we are seeing companies that are going to have to start looking at new ways of raising capital uh, to protect their uh, their businesses. And so I think you're right about that. One of the things I love on your blog, um, and this is an attestment to the institutionalization and the professionalism that is coming into this world. It's just a, a very simple line, but risk management, compliance, and security are core to our business and enable us to scale a healthy and sustainable ecosystem. This is not something, this is not a line that you would have heard three or four years ago. People in digital assets were not talking abundantly about risk management and compliance. Uh, but the fact that you guys talk about it, and I think it, there are more, obviously our firm talks about it a lot too, but this is really important, risk management. You cannot have another quadriga. You cannot just have clients put their capital, depend on that, and have your systems eviscerate their money. And so I think that's really important that you guys, you know, really, uh, I think that's profound. And so I, I applaud you on that. Um, as we're wrapping up, I want people to find how they can get in touch with FalconX, how they can get in touch with their team, and if they obviously are interested, where they can start to maybe use it. Yeah. Um, so the easiest way to basically get connected with us is just shoot us an email, info at falconx.io. That's the best way to reach out. And uh, I'll, I'll get all those emails and I can triage and I can get you in front of the right folks within the company. More broadly, right? I mean, whether you're looking for a, you know, being a customer on the platform or not, if we could be of any help uh, in terms of uh, teasing out the ecosystem or like, you know, untangling some of the complexity, would love to, right? I mean, I think podcasts like Baselayer are doing a phenomenal job in terms of simplifying what's going on. And that clarity is what's, what the space desperately needs. If we could be of uh, any help in providing that clarity to your more customized level, happy to please reach out to info at falconx.io. Amazing. Raghu, thank you so much for coming on Baselayer. We wish you guys luck at FalconX. I know you guys just had a very successful uh, funding round. And so you have... The ability to really scale and bring this to the masses. Congratulations on that. And hopefully we can talk to you in about six months and so and see how things are progressing. Awesome. Really a pleasure, David. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. 
Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.